Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 24. Over the past several weeks, I've been working through the people, places, and kings the Israelites encountered but did not defeat, as found in Joshua 13. This week, I'll wrap up that part of the text and push forward. And with that, let's get started. Last in the list of people and places mentioned at the beginning of Joshua 13, as not having been conquered by the Israelites, are the Gabalites. The first thing to know about these people is that they were probably the same as the people from the ancient city of Byblos. Working under that theory, I'm going to cover the history of that city in this episode. But first, the Old Testament text. In Joshua, the city was mentioned along with a few other places. There it reads that the Israelites did not conquer the land of the Gabalites. It pops up again in 1 Kings, where we're told about the construction of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. There, King Solomon conscripted forced labor out of all of Israel, totaling 30,000 men. He sent them to Lebanon, and that location is important, as that's where Gabal was located. Solomon sent 10,000 men a month in shifts with them working one month in Lebanon and spending two months at home. Adoniram, who was the son of Solomon's highest-ranking tax collector, was in charge of the forced labor. In addition to the 30,000, Solomon had 70,000 laborers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hill country, all totaled 180,000 laborers. Over all of these were 3,300 supervisors, They quarried out great, costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the temple with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders, Haram's builders, and the Gabalites did the stone cutting and prepared the timber and stone to build the temple. What we're not told in this part of the text is if the Gabalites were hired laborers or forced. Gable makes a passing appearance in Psalm 83, but it's only in a list of other Philistine cities. The only other mention was in Ezekiel, and when that prophet was speaking about the Philistine coastal city of Tyre. There, the artisans of Gabal were said to have caulked the seams of Tyre. This could have been an additional reference to the stonecutters from that city. Do note that both the New Revised Standard and the King James called the city Gabal. The NIV refers to it as Byblos, which is true for all mentions of the city in the Bible. And that's it for the biblical text. Fortunately, the outside record provides much more detail in history. The city of Byblos is located 26 miles, 42 kilometers north of Beirut, Lebanon. It's a coastal city. Like many of the places I've recently covered, the earliest habitation was during the prehistoric Stone Age, likely sometime between about 9,000 and 7,000 B.C. Dating to this period are the remnants of some buildings, along with the usual flint tools. Among the remains of the buildings are plastered floors, possibly indicating permanent settlement. After all, you don't put that kind of effort into an immovable building if you are nomadic. Not only that, but the buildings were what's referred to as naviform, and as the name suggests, the houses were boat-shaped, with stacked stone walls and roofs made from wood branches. 
But with all of the time that has passed, the roofs are long gone, but the stone walls more or less remain. Think about that. The walls have lasted at least 9,000 years. A house of stone will stand. Such buildings have been found throughout the region and even as far away as Spain. Also from the period in Byblos are several burial tombs and pottery. The next era for Byblos, between about 6400 and 5800 BC, has yielded archaeological finds of pottery, figurines, small flint arrowheads, and other associated stone tools. There were also sickle blades. What I could not find was what these blades were made from. This was a few thousand years before the Bronze Age in the region, and even before the Copper Age. Having said that, stone sickle blades would be rather cumbersome. My guess, and it really is a guess, is that these blades were likely from naturally occurring copper, hammered into a blade. So, the technology was not advanced enough to permit the refining of ore, and the use of the metal was exceedingly limited. The first real indication of any sort of permanent settlement, at least on a large scale, was much later, in the 3rd millennium BC, likely sometime around when Abraham was in the region. This is about the same time as the general development of most early Canaanite civilizations. The next 500 years, which gets us to about 5300 BC, has yielded far fewer finds, and the things that have been uncovered are mostly pottery. This is thought to show a decline in the population of the towns in those years. Then, around 5300 BC, and for the next 800 years, so getting us to 4500 BC, the number and variety of artifacts increased. It was at the beginning of this period that Byblos appears to have been first permanently occupied, and has probably remained as such through today. So, for over 7,000 years, this may make Byblos the oldest, longest, continually occupied city in the world. Finds from the period include pottery, of course, along with stone bowls and other such vessels, the remnants of storage silos, and chambered tombs, and the associated tomb seals. Obviously, this is far more telling than the previous building foundations and walls and thought to show an advancing civilization, as would be expected over a few thousand years, and in this region. Do note that all of this is still well before Abraham, and still in the Stone Age period, meaning most of the tools and implements were made from stone. The period between about 4500 and 3600 BC, and still in the Stone Age, has burial jars, pierced flint tools, in what was likely flint jewelry, a churn, perhaps for butter or cheese, along with a figurine that may be the crude representation of a rudimentary string instrument, perhaps a lyre or violin. After all of this, in around 3600 BC, we finally made it to the early Bronze Age in the region. Advances in the region in both technology and economics think trade, metal refining, and agriculture, led to a shift in the buildings, meaning more of them, and typically smaller, potentially single-family dwellings. Also dating to the period are cylinder seals, 
These are usually associated with correspondence, which also tends to indicate trade with far-flung places. The pottery from the period began to show the use of silica, among the first technological advances in that work in the region. There was also a burial jar, which itself isn't remarkable. What is remarkable is that this jar contained a copper hook. Finds from the few years after this hook show more and more copper, landing the city in the beginning of the Copper Age, and the development of communication, so written language, which gets us to around 3100 BC and still some 1,000 years before Abraham. By this time, the city of Byblos was large enough to be situated on the tops of two hills with a shallow valley in between. The hills provided protection from invaders, while the valley provided water and a place for agriculture. Don't let that it was on two separate hilltops fool you into thinking it was an incredibly large city. Instead, in total, it was only about three acres, just over a hectare, in total land footprint. What was key, though, was the location. Similar to a few of the other places I've recently covered, like Tyre and Sidon, not only was it located on a hilltop, but also on the coast, and with a natural harbor. Consider that to be the trifecta. In this case, there was just enough of a natural outcropping of land into the Mediterranean Sea that boats were protected from storms and the constant undulation of waves. At this time, there were in the neighborhood of 20 houses in the neighborhood. The previous plastering of floors reappeared in this era, and the pottery had impressions of shells, embellishments that may show the pottery was not just used for utilitarian purposes. In the period, the city began to show that it wasn't just an agricultural or trading center. The coast, along with the protected harbor, served as the basis for a developing fishing industry, with a loose use of the word industry. At a minimum, aquaculture provided additional foodstuffs for the growing population. It also allowed them to push the technology of boats forward. All of this taken together allows archaeologists, anthropologists, and other researchers to suggest that the economy of that place and time, at least in Byblos, was quickly developing into a dynamic, vibrant, urban center. This was around the beginning of the 3rd millennium BC. For clarity, and to pick a year, just think of it as being around 2900 BC, give or take. Dating to a bit later are pottery fragments that claim the city was the first established Phoenician city. These remnants assert the city was founded by their deity Cronus. While Cronus was a precursor to the Greek pantheon, in the region he was considered to be an equivalent of the various forms of Baal. All of this ties the city to the later, probably Greek-originating, Sea Peoples. Just after this time, and placing it around 2600 BC, the city first appeared in Egyptian hieroglyphs. This was during the Egyptian 4th Dynasty, and during the reign of Snefaru. At that time, in Egyptian records, instead of Biblus, it was called Gubla. Recall that in the text of Joshua, the city, at least in the New Revised Standard and King James versions, the name Gebla was used. 
This name, whether in the Egyptian hieroglyphs or the ancient Hebrew that formed the basis of the Old Testament text, is thought to have originated in Akkadian. This theory stems from the later, meaning 18th century Egyptian dynasty-based Armana letters. In this case, probably written between the reigns of Pharaohs Amenhotep III and IV, dating the letters to between about 1388 and 1344 BC. What all of this means is that Byblos Gubla, Gebel, your pick of the name, was well known throughout the region beginning around 2600 BC and maintains this status through today. The name Gebel would continue at least into the first millennium BC when it appeared as such in both Phoenician and Punic scripts. I'll get to when it changed to Byblos in a few minutes. As for its meaning in the local Canaanite language, which was a version of Northern Semitic, it's thought to be a combination of the word well, meaning a source of water, and God, probably meaning either the well of God or the source of God. About this well, it's known as the King's Spring, at least in English. The Arabic name is similar enough. Overall, the well is close to 65 feet, 20 meters deep. And it's not a well in the small sense of dropping a bucket down by rope. Instead, it's large enough, and the rock is strong enough, to support a spiral staircase wrapping around the perimeter to the bottom and held enough water to supply the entire city. There's an associated Egyptian myth about the well that, at least according to the 1st century AD Greek writer Plutarch, the Egyptian deity Isis was met in the well by the king's servants, who then took her to the palace where her husband, Osiris, was embedded in one of the palace's stone columns. The Arabic name for the place was related to Jebelah, and the name stuck around for a long while, as even the invading and conquering crusaders would call it Giblet, or sometimes Gibbelet, to the point that the crusaders called the administrator for the region the Lord of Giblet, at least in some sources. But I'm getting well ahead of myself, especially from a timeline perspective. Back in the historical timeline, during the Egyptian Old Kingdom, which ran from about 2700 to 2200 BC, many researchers think that Byblos was essentially an outpost for that empire. In the Egyptian hieroglyphs from that era, there's mention of the cities, maybe colonies, said to be allied with Egypt, or even part of their empire, and located on the water. Correlate this with the Egyptian-style artifacts found in Byblos in the period, and there is a compelling case to be made. There's other evidence as well. Egyptian First Dynasty tombs used wood from Byblos. This would even predate the Old Kingdom, as the First Dynasty ran from about 3100 to 2900 BC. This wood is the famed Lebanese cedar, the same tree that appears in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the prophet Isaiah's writings, was used in Solomon's temple, and is even depicted on the modern flag of Lebanon. To the Egyptians, Byblos was literally synonymous with ocean-going trade. In their ancient language, the word for an ocean-going boat translates to Byblos ship. How deep and long did this relationship between Egypt and Byblos run? 
from at least the first dynasty until the Greeks showed up, and of course the trade even continued after that. Among the many artifacts uncovered at Byblos that attest to this are pottery fragments bearing the inscription of the Middle Kingdom's 13th dynasty Egyptian king, Neferhotep I, from the 18th century BC. This was just before the Amarna letters. Recall that these Egyptian documents are correspondence between the rulers in Egypt in their far-flung territories. In the case of Byblos, these letters include some 60 documents from two different Byblos governors. In these, the first-named governor, Rib Hadda, made a plea to his Egyptian overlords, in that case ultimately up to the pharaoh Akhenaten. Overall, he was asking for military assistance against the ever-present threat posed by the Habiru. Recall that the Habiru was a catch-all name for various, seemingly indigenous, outlaws, raiders, and sometimes mercenaries. It seems that they were threatening to overrun Byblos, as they had done many neighboring cities and villages. The connection between Byblos and Egypt probably reached its peak around 1200 BC, which would place it in the 19th dynasty. About this same time, which may have been just before or just after the arrival of the Sea Peoples, the Egyptians would shift their economic focus to the other port cities of Tyre and Sidon. The subsequent 20th and 21st dynasties would see the decline in contact, culminating in the collapse of the New Kingdom, which roughly corresponded with the Sea Peoples gaining control of Canaan in the exodus and wandering of the Israelites. Also from the 2nd and 1st millenniums BC is an necropolis that contains the tombs of many Byblos kings, including King Ahiram. A bit more on him in a minute. In the midst of all of this, in the 11th century BC, Byblos was no longer an Egyptian colony and became one of the preeminent cities in Phoenicia, perhaps the wealthiest and strongest. In the same period, and as seen in archaeological evidence, five different royal inscriptions from Byblos have been found. The best known of these is on the tomb of the king Ahiram I mentioned a minute ago. Besides evidencing the royalty of the period's rulers, they also show the language in use at the time. This was a 22-character Phoenician alphabet. The writing system would spread through trade throughout ports bordering the Med in North Africa and Southern Europe. Also dating to the period in M. Byblos is a ruin that has become known as the Temple of the Obelisk. It was dedicated to the Canaanite war god Reshef. As the name suggests, numerous obelisks of various sizes have been uncovered in this ruin and include those dedicated to local deities along with their Egyptian counterparts. Many of the small obelisks found in this temple were used as religious offerings to the various members of the pantheon. Also at the temple was a sanctuary, which contained a large number of human bronze figurines that were covered in gold leaf. To date, it's considered the most spectacular of all the ruins uncovered from ancient Byblos. By the time Alexander arrived in the 4th century BC, the temple had fallen into disuse. A few hundred years before the Greeks led by Alexander conquered the region, the Assyrians showed up. At that time, and like what happened throughout the region, the Neo-Assyrians, led by their king Tiglath-Pileser III, 
conquered Byblos in 738 BC. The specifics were that Byblos had their own client king and paid tribute to the Assyrians. In the 6th century BC, the Persians came along, conquering Byblos in 538 and maintaining control for just over two centuries. Under them, Byblos remained a vassal, one of four such Phoenician city-states. The others were Sidon, Tyre, and Airwood. Then, in 332 BC, Alexander drove the Persians from the city, establishing Greek control and changing the name to Gebel. It was the Greeks, and early in their control, that sought to Hellenize all things they came across. In the case of Gebel, they would later rename it Byblos. Then, something interesting, and slightly more than speculative. The Greeks then the Romans would leverage the port at Byblos for trade. Among the many items imported there was papyrus, their version of paper, and brought in from Egypt. It was this papyrus-slash-paper trade that may have led to the Greek word biblos, meaning book. And biblos led to our word Bible, among many other words associated with text and reading, like bibliography. Bibliotheca, among many, many others. If you remember anything from this episode, it might be that the world's oldest city and the trade it brought in thousands of years ago led to the name of probably the most published book in history. Back in Byblos, and with Greek control, trade would continue, and money was used maybe for the first time in the city, in this case, coinage. With the arrival of the Greeks and lasting through the Roman period, the city thrived again, though it remained smaller than its rival ports of Tyre and Sidon. As part of this invigoration, the Temple of Reshef was elaborately rebuilt. The city became a center for the worship of the Greek deity Adonis. About the same time, placing it in the 3rd century BC, a small amphitheater was built in the city. Next were the Romans who maintained the port, which led to continued economic prosperity in the region. There are the ruins of another Roman amphitheater built in 218 AD in the city. And after BC turned to AD and the Romans morphed to the Byzantines, Byblos became a center for the new official religion, Christianity. This, along with expanding sea trade, led to even more wealth being accumulated. In fact, to this day, Byblos remains a predominantly Christian city, made up mostly of Maronites, with minorities of Armenian Apostolic, Greek Orthodox, and Greek Catholics. There are a small number of Shia Muslims there, too. Back in the Byzantine period, the economic prosperity would last until the first Muslim conquest in the early 7th century AD. With the change in control for the city, Well, really, the overall region. Trade between the Muslim-controlled areas in Europe dwindled to next to nothing. And for a city that was built around such activity, it suffered. This condition would last until the First European Crusade in 1098. When the Crusaders gained control over Byblos, they changed its name to Giblet. And the port was used to bring goods in from Europe along with exporting local wares and agricultural products, and with that, prosperity returned. Over the next couple centuries, Byblos would remain under the sway of the Crusaders. 
What this meant, at least in the case of the city, was that it served as a crusader port, at least nominally under the control of the crusader kingdom of Jerusalem, though for a while it was under the rule of a Genoese family, meaning they were from the Italian port city of Genoa. As such, the city paid tribute to that city, and even to the church of San Lorenzo, which was the cathedral in Genoa. Bibleists fell back into Muslim control in 1187, but within a few dozen years was again under the Crusaders, and it went back and forth a couple of times, as did much of the region, until the Crusaders finally returned to Europe. Various Muslim groups would control the city until the Ottomans arrived on the scene in 1516, and they would hold it for over 400 years until World War I when they allied with the losing side. During and after World War I, Byblos, really all of Lebanon, would fall under French control as part of their mandate, where it remained until 1943, when the country of Lebanon became independent, and has remained as such since that time, though many of the years, decades really, have seen civil wars and the chaos that goes along with them. Which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue pushing through the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.